Good morning, Cornerstone Bible Church. It's a blessing to see many new faces here this morning. And by new, I mean faces I've not seen in a very long time. And so it is a blessing to be here with you. We do miss all of those who are still at home. We know that there is a number of reasons why you are at home. Uh, and, and we miss you. We long for the day when we can all be together again. For those of you who are jo- joining in online and thinking about joining us, uh, I do want you to, you to know, as you can see, I took off my mask before coming up here, but we are all wearing masks and we are doing that during our our whole time here, uh, except for whoever is leading and preaching and singing. So if that is something that's maybe stopped you from joining us, please, uh, please, please uh, know that we are are wearing masks here and trying to be as safe as possible. We're also trying to limit our service time and we are putting our singing at the end of service. It feels strange. I'm sure it feels strange to, to, to to all of us here this morning, but the idea being that uh, singing is one of the greatest uh, ways to 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 to, to spread uh, a airborne virus. So we want to uh, make sure that you all feel comfortable. We know that you're excited to to greet one another, uh, but if you want to leave as soon as we're done singing, that is why the singing is at the uh, end. So feel free to go outside where there's lots of fresh air. Uh, if you distance, you can even take off your mask and speak to someone from a distance. And, uh, and so you don't have to stay here with all of our germs. We are going to keep our masks on during singing, though. Uh, and just one more quick uh, uh, word. If uh, uh, you are at home and thinking about joining us, uh, please don't worry about letting someone else go first. It's okay. Just go ahead and RS, RSVP, get in line. If it fills up, then, then, then you'll be put on that list first for next week. We have a great admin team who's managing all of that. And so just go ahead and sign up. Sign up every week and, and someone else will manage who's been here when. So we just want to see as, as many of you here who, has feel, who feel comfortable as uh, often as you can. With that, we're going to change to something else totally. Some people love being frightened. Some people love being frightened. When I was a kid, scaring and being scared seemed like a lot of fun. I have one daughter who really enjoys that. We've had to say, no, we're, we're, we're done with that. Because as you get older, and I'm not exactly sure why, it starts feeling like less fun. There's a point, though, in someone's life when... It would be unwise to jump out of a closet and frighten them, right? Maybe your grandparents, right? That is not a loving thing to do unless you want to send them to heaven early. As I read Revelation 1 verses 9 to 20, and I'm going to read it for us in just a minute. Ask yourself, why did God frighten the apostle John? The Apostle John, when this is being written, is a man in his late 80s or early 90s. He served faithfully for 60 years. And so God blesses him with a vision that leaves him terrified as if he had died. I'm going to read Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and fellow fellow partaker, in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called, called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you for John's faithful testimony of, of what he saw. And as terrifying as it was, you also had comfort for him. Uh, Father, we pray, Lord, that we would be taught from your word this morning, and uh, that your spirit would do what my words can't. Uh, Father, we want your word to be communicated from your lips through uh, the man that you oversaw the writing of this word through your spirit. So it, it's perfectly your word in its original manuscript. And thank you, Father, it's been translated into English for us. And we ask that your spirit would now use your words that you've preserved in our hearts so that we could be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. A major theme in the book of Revelation is, is faithfulness. God's people are called to be faithful in a world that is filled with, with opposition. This book, this, the, the, this book of Revelation motivates people toward faithfulness despite the suffering because of the certainty of Christ's victory. It's a book that proclaims Christ as victorious. So be faithful even as you go through suffering. This book proclaims that Christ will win. And those who are faithful will share in Christ's victory. Are you fulfilling God's calling for your life with faithfulness? And he has called you to many things in God's word. Are you fulfilling his calling to your life with faithfulness? Will you continue to be faithful if persecution becomes intense? When Christ returns, will he find you faithful? Today in Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20, we're going to see three responses to this magnificent revelation of Jesus Christ so that you will be faithful. We'll see three responses to this revelation of Jesus Christ so that you will be faithful. So the first response here is aim to faithfully fulfill the responsibilities to which God has called you. Aim to faithfully fulfill the responsibilities to which God has called you. Perhaps the topic of faithfulness leaves you feeling 
a little guilty. Perhaps you feel a little guilty about what you've left undone. Or maybe you feel a little guilty about what you have done or even have been doing. Or perhaps, perhaps you feel pride. Perhaps you've been patting yourself on the back for how faithful you've already been. God wants you to be humbly confident that you can be faithful to him and to the commands of his words. To have a humble confidence, not when you're patting yourself on the back, but not just fearful either that you're going to fall away from being faithful. You can be faithful, and none of us will be perfectly faithful, but you, through Jesus Christ strengthening you, can be faithful to what God has called you. The same God who helped John be faithful will help you be faithful. And that's what we see here. We see a testimony of, of a faithful man. Now, we can't be certain in, uh, about the year in which John wrote. It's likely that it was 95 uh, 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 80, 95 years after the birth of Christ, over 60 years after the death, re re resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. John had outlived his brother James by 50 years. James had been beheaded 50 years prior by, by, by Herod Agrippa. John had outlived both Paul and Peter, who had been martyred by Nero, by 30 years. This is a, a remarkable testimony of faithfulness. And now John, who we know from the Gospel of John, is referred to as the one whom Jesus loved, remains the last of the apostles. The, the island of, of Patmos, where John most likely had been exiled to, is about eight miles long, about six miles wide. It's dry, rocky, hilly island. And John says that he was on this island because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. It was his faithfulness in ministry that led him to be exiled now, 95 years old on this island. And it says that on, that on the Lord's day, on the Lord's day, John was faithful to worship the Lord. And I trust by God's grace you are doing that, whether you're joining us via live stream or can be here with us this morning. If he was able, he met with the saints. We don't know how many were, were on the island. But it describes something else about John. It says that he was, he was in the spirit. John uses this phrase four times in, in, in the book of Revelation before describing the, the dramatic visions he sees. As God had done with the other apostles and prophets, God gives John a, a unique revelatory experience. And it begins before seeing anything. It begins audibly in verse 10, second half. I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, and we're not sure what it sounded like, but this loud voice got John's attention. I imagine it terrifying. Maybe some of you have had the terrifying experience of putting earbuds into your ear and then turning on your phone only to realize that the volume was maxed out and you can hear what's saying, but the only thought you can think is, I need to get these out of my ears as quickly as possible or they're going to start bleeding, right? You're like, and so you rip them and you try to get them out of your ears. I wonder that if that was a little of what John felt like. His, it was a sensory overload that came out of nowhere. This loud voice of a trumpet, like a trumpet. John had faithfully proclaimed the word of God. 
He had been faithful to the testimony of Jesus. He had already written a gospel. He had already written 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And now God is giving John another job to do. We see in verse 11, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. And so we're going to move on in a minute to what John saw. But notice the humility with, with, with which John refers to himself. We see in verse 9, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. See, John emphasizes what he has in common with his readers. In Christ, they belong to the same family. They stood on level ground as brothers and sisters in Christ. In Christ, because of this union with Christ through faith in his atoning sacrifice, they participate, they share in the same salvation experience, which John so, so appropriately describes as tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus. And what a unique way to describe what it means to belong to Jesus Christ. Tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. See, to be faithful requires us to embrace our place in God's kingdom. In Colossians 1.13 it says, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Those who have put their faith in Christ have become part of his kingdom. He is our king. And if Jesus Christ is your king, we are responsible to obey our king. We are to fulfill the commissions that he has given us as part of his kingdom. We are to take seriously the requirements he has given us. We are part of his kingdom. That is our identity. We belong to a king. And the overwhelming testimony of the New Testament is that faithfulness to King Jesus will bring you tri 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 tribulation. It'll bring you suffering. It'll bring you affliction. And that's what he says, that he is a fellow partaker of the tribulation and kingdom. In John 15, 20, Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That is what it is to belong to Jesus Christ. In Acts 14, verse 22, Paul and Barnabas were going around visiting the churches they'd recently planted. And it said that he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That was part of his ministry to those who would be faithful. You're going to go through, tri through tribulations. Don't be surprised. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you desire to live godly, you will be persecuted. If we're going to remain faithful to our King Jesus while going through suffering, we must have perseverance. Perseverance is holding out. It is also bearing up under. It's, it's persevering while going through difficulty. Perseverance is the determination to not give up. Perseverance is what gets someone through that last grueling mile of a marathon. Not that I know from experience, but I see people persevering. This, this perseverance that requires us to cling to God's promises. Perseverance is a key characteristic of those who are truly saved. We are probably 
most, most familiar with the parable of the soils from the Gospel of Matthew. But Jesus tells a parable of the soils, and it's recorded in, in Luke 8. Listen to what Luke 8, 8, verse 15 says. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit. And we're used to that. But it says bear fruit with perseverance, with endurance, with steadfastness. The Christian life is one of endurance. The one who is saved is the one who endures. We have yet to experience the fullness of what has been promised to us. In Romans 8.25, Paul says, If we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. We wait eagerly for it. We are waiting, we are enduring for the promises that God has given us. In, in uh, uh, Hebrews 10.36, it says, For you have need of endurance, and we have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Those who receive what God has promised to us, that we've received through faith, gain that through enduring. Saints, God has called you to be a partaker right along with this Apostle John in the tribulation kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. That is what it means to be a Christian, to belong to Jesus' kingdom, to go through, through tribulation, through affliction, through suffering, and to do so with perseverance. Like he strengthened our brother John through that 60 years of ministry, 60 plus years of ministry, he will strengthen you so that you are faithful in your calling. He will strengthen you so that you are faithful and you're calling to whatever calling God has given you in your life. We need to aim to faithfully fulfill the responsibilities to which God has called you, even as we see the Apostle John. We also need to take seriously, this is the second response we need to have, take seriously the nature of God who requires your faithfulness. Take seriously the nature of God who requires your faithfulness. We're going to look now at John's vision and what he saw. It's not essential as we do this to try to capture all of these images in your short-term memory at the same time. Perhaps it's best to think of John kind of describing what he sees as his attention moves over this vision. He's not giving instructions to build our own Revelation 1 Lego figure of Jesus. It's not like, oh, I need a double-edged sword here coming out of the mouth, and I need some white hair for the head. Instead, you can kind of imagine it, if you studied art, like a cubist painting, where he's trying to capture in a two-dimensional space the same figure from a bunch of different angles. And what you see, it's like, like this is both more full, but also it's blowing away my mind as I read it. Like, I can't, I can't make all this make sense. In one hand, he's holding seven stars in his hand, and the next hand, he's touching me with that same hand. So, so you kind of imagine it as a montage of, of images that, that are, are going quickly past. He's trying to capture the experience of what he's seeing and hearing. And the first thing that John, John describes in verse 12 is seven golden lampstands. And these lampstands were like those found in the uh, tabernacle or the uh, temple. 
From verse 20, we understand that these seven lampstands represent the seven churches of Asia Minor that John was writing to. That number seven is really indicating that, that, that this is a picture of the body of Christ in its entirety. It is a picture of the church. And John sees this, this, this figure, this, this son of man, in the midst of the church. And we're going to see that that son of man is Christ, the son of God. He is the one who, is, who was dead but is now living. In verse 13, John sees this, this figure that, that, that he doesn't seem, seem, seem to recognize at first. He never says, as he's describing this, I saw Jesus Christ. He wants us to kind of go through it as he's going through it. The figure was like a son of man. He was human in shape. And the phrase son of man would remind readers of Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14, which he had already referenced in, in verse 7. And I'm going to read Daniel 7, 13 to 14 again for you. It says that, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, to God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. So there we see this, this figure as a son of man. But as John's describing what he's seeing, he's, he's seeing something in the shape of a human and he describes this, this a robe in verse 13, robe reaching to the feet and a golden sash. And that would, what would earmark this figure as someone who is devoted to God's temple service. And whether that was an angel in heaven or a human priest, they're both pictured with the same kind of, of, of garments. This is the uniform of God's presence. In, in a way, you could think of the cast members uh, of heaven wear these long, these long white robes with golden sashes. In keeping with, with, with the other descriptions we see, this robe would have been made of linen. It would have been bright white. And perhaps with these lampstands, John thinks of a priest serving in the heavenly temple. In verse 14, this being's hair, and we know it is, it is God the Son, it is white. And he says it's like white wool, like snow. It's as white as anything that, that, that could be made or found in, in the ancient world. You know, they just didn't have the, the, the privilege of just white paper. The white hair suggests wisdom and the dignity of age. This being before them before John is ancient. This phrase would have reminded readers of Daniel 7, 9, which describes God the Father as the ancient of days who took his seat. His vesture was, his robes were white like snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. And this is the first hint that this son of man that John is seeing here is, is a divine being, that, that, that this is God. And then it describes his eyes like a flame of fire. That indicates his seeing and understanding. These eyes have, although he's ancient and wise and dignified, his eyes have not been dulled with age. They are active and penetrating. Some we can kind of imagine some kind of laser eyes burning. This is a being too wise, too insightful to hide anything from. His evaluation is flawless. He will not be manipulated by man. 
He is independent and all-knowing. His eyes are x-rays of the heart. He knows exactly what is inside everyone. Perhaps this is part of why John falls as dead. Nothing is going to move against the Son of Man's will. In verse 15, it says, His feet are burnished like bronze. They're they're strong and stable. His strength is is without any impurities. It says it's, it's glowing as a furnace. It's been purified. It's still hot. It's glowing. This figure is irresistibly strong and unquestionably pure. He's nothing like a statue that can be easily torn down with a tarnished legacy. Neither is he like the world's idols. He is, he's vibrant. He's, he's strong. He's steadfast. He's immovable. He's unstoppable. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. It's like the deafening crash of the waves or the, 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 the sound of a waterfall. His voice is powerful. His voice will be heard. His will is, it, it is unyielding. None can outshout him. A mob of billions won't overtalk him. His will will be done. We'll see in verse 20 that, these, that, that, that in verse 16 where we see these, 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 uh, these stars in his right hand, that these are angels of the seven churches. The picture, the picture of this right hand shows that these angels are under his control. He snaps his fingers and God's angelic hosts, his, his servants, act among his people. They, 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 in a sense, door dash whatever it is God wants his people to have. The angels are there to minister as this son of man wants. And then, if this isn't all, I'm just going to say, if it isn't all trippy enough, This sharp two-edged sword in verse 16 comes out of his mouth. And this is a a, a, a offensive weapon. It's a large sword like like a cavalry would swing like a a scythe or like a, a claymore, a giant sword. This sword represents the devastating power of God's judgment. We see the same sword coming out of this same mouth in Revelation 19, verse 15. From his mouth, it describes the Son of Man's return to earth. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. It's the sword, the word of judgment. Verse 21 of Revelation 19, And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth, with just a word slicing down millions. But it's a double-edged sword. The sword is also mentioned in a letter to one of the churches to Pergamum in Revelation 2.16. Where Jesus calls that church to repent. Therefore repent or else I am coming to you quickly. And I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. It's a warning for those who are living like they are not saved to repent or judgment is coming. The son's, the, the son's face was like the sun shining in, 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 in its strength. And that word strength there is the word we get dynamite from, in its power. Now this is unlike Moses, who after spending time with God in Exodus 34, 29, came away with his face shining, reflecting God's brightness. 
No, this is the son's own brightness radiating from his face, his, his holiness. Matthew 17, 2, John had previously seen at least something like this. When Jesus was transfigured, transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun. Revelation 21, verses 23, speaks of the sun with his face shining. And the city has no need of the sun, the, 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 the eternal city, heaven, or of the moon to shine it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the lamb. And this is who we're seeing here. The, the, and again, like it blows our mind reading all of these things, right? You can tell you can't keep all these things in your short-term memory at the same time. We've gone on to another image here. And in the context of what we've seen of, of, of this glowing bronze, strong feet and this mouth of, of judgment, this light would be terrifying. It's like a floodlight used to interrogate the guilty. It's like a searchlight that's looking to find the hiding who are trying to escape. It's like a, a decimating atomic blast of brightness that leaves the shadow after it destroys what was in front of it. There's no hiding from the spotlight of God's holiness. John had been faithful. And yet when he turned around and when he saw Christ as described in verses 12 to 16, John fell at his feet like a dead man we see in the beginning of verse 17. And there's no evidence that John can even think at this point, right? Uh, uh, we don't see him very gospel-centered at this moment. It doesn't seem like he can even pull up thoughts about, uh, about oh, wait, Jesus died for me. All John can do is just pure fear. It's pure terror. John is dominated by the son's supremacy, by Jesus's wisdom, by the son of man's vision, his strength, his purity, his power, his judgment, his holiness. Even after walking faithfully with Christ for 60 years, John is devastated. And this is a warning for us to not forget the nature of our King Jesus. King Jesus is mercifully human, but he is also devastatingly God. John describes accurately our King. This is Jesus. This is not all of Jesus. The book of Revelation describes him in many ways. It describes him as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world, which sounds great in a sense until we see that this lamb has, has seven Horns, you're like, oh, okay, so this is this is not a cute lamb here. There's, there's there's many descriptions of John in the book of Revelation. Praise the Lord that this terrifying vision, I mean, did I say John? This of Jesus in the book of Revelation, this terrifying picture of Jesus is also complemented by the gospels. And it's also complemented by what we see of Jesus in just a minute. But that doesn't mean that faithful John didn't fall as dead. See, Jesus is the unstoppable sovereign who will judge rightly, who will be victorious. God knows we need this vision so that we take him seriously, so that we take seriously him who requires faithfulness from us that we take fulfilling the commissions he has given us seriously. And I think that's a little bit of why John is getting this vision right now. He's got a job to do. I've got a letter for you to give, John. You have to get it right. And do you think he's going to get it right? He's going to get it right, right? He's like, I am not going to mess around with that Jesus. But it's also 
for the seven churches he's writing to who are being called to be faithful. And as God calls us to be faithful, we need this vision of Christ. How has God commissioned you? Have you taken God's commission to you seriously? Maybe he has commissioned you currently to be single or currently as a spouse or as a parent, as a worker. We saw last week that he's commissioned us to be a kingdom of priests. Some of you he's commissioned to be sheep and some of you as shepherds. Are you taking seriously the great commission he's given to you to make disciples? Are you taking seriously the commission that this exalted Jesus has given you? If we're going to be faithful, we need to aim to to faithfully fulfill the responsibilities which God has called us to. We need to take seriously the nature of God who requires your faithfulness. But then we need to be encouraged towards faithfulness by Jesus' comforting words and presence. So we need to take seriously this Jesus, but then we need to be comforted. Uh, We need to be encouraged toward faithfulness by Jesus' comforting words and presence. And that's our third response. We see in the second half of verse 17, after John falls like a dead man, and I don't mean if he, if he passed out, if he goes comatose, if he can't speak like Daniel couldn't when he sees a similar vision in Daniel 10. Jesus reaches out his right hand saying, do not be afraid. What comforting hand and what consoling words, do not be afraid. See, this hand doesn't strike his faithful servant And this mouth doesn't cut him with his double-edged sword. The words, do not be afraid, are often found on Jesus' lips. When Jesus calmed the storm in Matthew 14, verse 27, immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, it's I, do not be afraid. After John and James and Peter saw Jesus transformed in Matthew, Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up. Do not be afraid. This one who, who touches with this, with this compassion, with this strengthening, with this even commissioning hand, this, 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 this mouth which in kindness says, don't be afraid, then says, I am the first and the last. If anyone would ever say that Jesus is not God, they need to look at this verse. This shocking words on the lips of anyone who would look like a son of man. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, and that's Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, the Yahweh of hosts. I am the first and I am the last and there is no God besides me. Jesus is clearly proclaiming his deity. I am the first and the last. The same thing in Isaiah 48, verses 12 and 13. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Surely my hand founded the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. All of this is mine. I am the first and the last. Jesus is ultimate. Jesus is eternally and independently existing. Jesus is supreme over history. Jesus is the one who causes and sustains the reality in which we participate right at this second. Jesus tells his faithful ones, do not fear, I am the first and the last. 
And then he continues, I am the living one. It's a common way to speak of God in Scripture, the living one. In contrast to, to, to fake idols, Jesus is the living one. He has life in himself. He is, I am that I am. And if there were any doubts left that this really is Christ, listen to what he says next. And I was dead. Something that God the Father never says. Verse 18, and I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. The sacrifice that this heavenly priest brought into God's presence was himself. I was dead. He was the lamb who was slain. Hebrews 10 verse 12 says, but he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. He has given the sacrifice of himself. He was that, and maybe there is comfort of atonement there for John who is standing before God in all of his holiness. Remember, I died for you, John. You're going to be okay. And he is alive forever. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Hebrews 7, 16 says, But according to the power of an indestructible life, he lives to intercede for us. Jesus' life is indestructible. He lives forevermore. And then it says, verse 18, And I have the keys of death and of Hades. To have the keys to my house is to have the authority to enter my house. And Jesus has the authority over death. And Hades refers to, to, to the, afterlife, the afterlife, the place of departed spirits. Jesus has the power to send to Hades and the power to deliver from Hades. And no one can take his life again. No one can snatch the keys from Jesus' belt. John shouldn't fear because the worst that could happen to him, the worst that could happen to him to be eternally destroyed by this holy God he's standing in front of will not happen. And if you are in Jesus Christ, you don't need to fear because the worst that could happen to you is not going to happen because Jesus died and lives forevermore. And he's got the keys. You are locked out of eternal wrath by God's grace. God's double-edged sword pronounced guilty over his son and not over his people. And that was guilt for sin that he didn't do. It was guilt for the sin that we did. We'll quickly look at verse 19 and 20. There's more comfort here. Jesus says to John, Therefore write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. Real quickly, saints, be comforted because God has written history. We've talked about that. We are living in his book. He has written it. Here he opens up in the book of Revelation, the last page for us. We get to skip to the end and see what happens. I tell my daughters not to do that when they're reading a book. Don't spoil it for them. But he spoils eternity for us. It is glorious. History belongs to Christ. Verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is really just exalting Jesus' power, his care, 
his protection and we should be comforted. He is in the midst of the seven lampstands. He is in the midst of his church. He is overseeing his church. He is watching his church. He is caring for his church. And I know that that's a, a, a strange phrase for us as it says that these are the angels of the seven churches. I think in, in the book of Revelation is best to take them as it says, as angels. It is not the only time in scripture that we see uh, uh, angels being appointed to a certain group of people. We don't understand all of that. But Jesus is in charge of the angels of these churches. These angels which, which minister are in his hand. He controls the angels, the angel, and, and I think from this we can assume that Cornerstone Bible Church has an angel and it is in his hand. The angels of all the churches accomplishing whatever Christ intends are in his hand. So what have we to fear if Jesus is in our midst? As long as we are faithful to him. Remember, he warns that double-edged sword is coming for those who don't repent. But if we are faithful to him, if we are abiding with him, if we are living in obedience to him, we have nothing to fear. Brothers and sisters, faithfully fulfill the calling which God has given you. Your faithfulness is the purpose of this letter. Your faithfulness is the purpose of this letter which guarantees that Christ will overcome. That's why this letter was, was written. You have seen Christ before whom you will stand in front of at judgment. You will stand in front of this Christ. I don't know if he'll look exactly like that. But you've also heard this Christ say, fear not. As he rests his omnipotent, universe-sustaining right hand on your shoulder. His right hand is a nail-pierced hand. Death and Hades will not separate his people from his love. What can anyone do to us? So let's faithfully be about our Father's business. Let's seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Let's be disciples who obey Jesus and who make disciples who obey Jesus. Let's steward the gifts that God has given us for the advancement of his kingdom. Let's be faithful. Perhaps the Lord will leave us serving here until we are 90 or 95. Maybe it'll be alone, exiled on a dusty island. Or maybe, as is more possible for many of us, we'll be serving our last days in a nursing home. May we be able to look back and say that we have been a faithful fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. And in our sphere of influences, both now and when we're 90 or 95, may we be faithful, like John, to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus. Let us be about the main things. And may we not forget the picture of this Christ whom we serve. Full of severity, but full of comfort. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness to us. Lord, we confess we cannot be faithful on our own. 
we cannot be as faithful as we ought to be. But we also thank you that you have united those of us who have believed in your Son to, 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 to unite us to his resurrection life so that we indeed can be faithful. Father, we do pray here for this morning, this morning for those who come who are not ready to stand before Jesus Christ. There are those whom he will not say fear not to, but who have reason to fear. I pray, Father, that they would put their hope completely in the death of Jesus Christ in their place. Pray, Father, that you would help us to be comforted who have put our hope in you, and that we would indeed be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.